Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard It made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-344 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. Today we talk with uh, a fascinating and successful woman, Ellen Jaffe-Jones, about how to eat healthy on the cheap. I connected with Ellen because my daughter brought home Ellen's book, How to Eat Vegan on $4 a Day. And I started looking through it, and I saw that Ellen had a cool backstory and was now a practicing endurance sports addict, as well as a vegan and an author. And she escaped from being a broadcast news personality on a fast track to an unhealthy and early demise by eating better and living a healthier life. And whether you're a vegan or not, you can pick up some tips on how to shoehorn some healthier food into your busy life. She's also one of those people that we talk to a lot who take control of their story and change directions midlife. And that should give us all hope that the only thing stopping any of us is the decision and action to make a change that we want and start telling a different narrative about our lives. And I'm not a vegan, but I do like to eat cleanish. I get lots of fruits and vegetables and nuts in my diet. And the thing is, I like fruits and vegetables and nuts. You have to make these decisions for yourself, but there are simple ways to eat a bit healthier. And one is to get your fruits and veggies and nuts. Another is to ease into eating less of the bad stuff. It has been consistently shown that there are just a small set of lifestyle inputs that have an outsized impact on your health and your quality of life and your longevity. And going all the way back to episode 97 in 2010 with Dr. Monty, we talked about this. And in no particular order, number one, eating a healthy diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and nuts, basically fibrous stuff. Number two, don't smoke. And number three, exercise consistently. And if you're listening to my voice here on the Run Run Live podcast, you probably have most of these covered. All three is great. If you can do all three, that's wonderful. If you can't, two is good. And even just one is better than nothing. And it's not black and white. And we all like to be perfect. But just remember, your goal is progress, not perfection. And this is just for your physical health. There's probably a similar list we could make up that would include cultivating a positive attitude, working on your self-awareness, having an attitude of abundance. But again, there's no winning this game. We all end up in the same place. What you get is a few more good years, a better life, a better legacy, maybe. Anyhow, in summary, eat kale. (laughs) I'm choking myself. (coughs) Eat kale. (laughs) I actually see that bumper sticker when I'm commuting. Eat more kale! It's like some sort of political statement. I do have some kale in my garden, and some chard, and my squash. My squash were making a wonderful display of prolificness this week, but much to my ire, Mr. Woodchuck has dug a burrow directly under my squash bed, 
and is browsing his way through my plants. And so the battle is pitched, man versus nature, and a dance played out each summer season for the last 8,000 years. Chaos wants to have its way with our taming of the world. And this, this is a 100 feet from where Buddy hangs out in the front yard. Brazen woodchucks, bunnies, and squirrels. I guess Buddy is more of an observer than an interventionist, a laissez-faire border collie, if you will. But he had a big week this week. He had surgery to remove a couple of large lumps that were accumulating on him. He's an old dog, and there was there was one under his back leg that seemed to be restricting his range of motion. So I gave him the green light, and he made it through the surgery fine and is now recovering. And we went out for a quick run in the woods yesterday, and he seems no worse for wear. He's doing pretty well. He's a happy dog. He's a good patient. And I've been trail running like a maniac. I signed up for a trail marathon in Indianapolis July 30th, Saturday, July 30th. And yes, that's next Saturday. <laughs> this past Sunday, I did a 20-mile trail tempo run that I was pretty, pretty proud of. My runs have been crappy in the heat and humidity so far this summer, so that one was a real confidence builder. So come up and join me next weekend. It's called the Eagle Creek Trail Marathon. And I think there's a half marathon and maybe a 10K too, I think. Don't know. And one interesting thing that is bugging me is that my pace has slowed to the point where the deer flies can catch me now. I never had a problem with the bugs because I could stay in front of them. And now I've reached an inflection point where they can catch me. And it's quite bothersome. On a couple of these trail runs in the heat, I have had like hundreds of deer flies swarming me in the woods. And 50 of them hold me down while the other 50, they bite me. And I feel so violated. In section one today, I'm going to talk about beginner trail running. Now that I've made it sound so sexy. <laughs> in section two, we're going to talk about understanding the narratives that other people are listening to in their own heads, other people's narratives. And hey, have you watched the new Tony Robbins documentary on Netflix? It is fascinating. He does these live intervention things with people where you can see him reading the people. And he's watching their physical cues and, he, and he's asking them questions, almost like a psychic would. And it's an amazing example of how good or at least practiced he is at reading people. It's, it's fascinating. It's a good watch. I guess we're lucky he's not using those skills for anything overtly evil. He could make these people do anything in these seminars. It's like the old religious camp meetings. And there's a lot of things that I recognize as familiar behavioral tricks, like getting people to change their state, i.e. breaking their frame of reference, or getting people to lean in or buy in a little bit at a time until they're totally susceptible to suggestions and instructions. And then asking good questions to get around the facade, getting past the perceived problem to the deeper self-awareness stuff. And then using the power of a shared experience to reinforce that behavior, shape that behavior. So really, it's just another version of the group run. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Trail running for beginners. So I went through my website and I saw that I have written many articles about trail running. I waxed poetically about my trails. I documented grueling trail races. I posted videos of Buddy and I out in the woods. I wrote about how to fall down. I told you how trails are rated for difficulty level. I wrote about the benefits and the risks of trail running. Those articles are all out there. But it seems to me that I always start to write an article on trail running basics, but then I get sidetracked into something more fun. So let's step back and take it from the beginning. If you have never run on a trail, what can you expect? Well, one, 
Trails are a bit more difficult than running on the sidewalk. Depending on the rating of the trail, they can be much, much, much more difficult. If you're planning to take your running off-road, expect to work a little bit harder. And this means your pace will be slower, sometimes significantly slower, on the trails. That's okay, because you're still getting a great workout. Road pace versus trail pace is just apples and oranges. Expect it so you don't look at your times and get bummed out. Number two, you will have to adapt your form and your turnover to the trails. The trail may have obstacles and or surface variations that will necessitate you adapting your stride. You have to look ahead, see the obstacles coming, and decide where to plant your feet to take advantage of the trail topology. You can't drag your feet or you'll trip. Typically, this means a shorter stride length with a faster cadence and keeping your feet off the ground. Again, nothing to worry about, just to be aware of. And expect to use some new muscles, tendons, and other bits. Because of the mixed topology, you tend to have a lot more lateral motion in the trails, a lot more variety. And this will work your ankles, your hips, your knees, and your core more than just running in a straight line. And just be aware that it takes time to get used to the shear of the trails. And you need to build up your body's response to that challenge. Number four, learn the flora and the fauna constraints for your area. If you live in the Southwest, where all the plants bite, you'll want to avoid brushing against them. If you live up here, where I live, you have to figure out how to keep the biting flies off you. If you're up in the Northwest, maybe you need a grizzly strategy. It's nothing to be frightened of. Just make sure you're aware of how to coexist with your local flora and fauna because they live in the woods. Number five, be willing to get scraped up a little bit. There have been many times in the last 20 years where I've caught a toe and taken a tumble and ended up face down in the trail with the dog laughing at me. It's no big deal. You get a little scraped up, a little dirty. It's part of the fun. Expect it. Get up, dust off, keep going. And number six, don't get lost. These days, you can actually use your GPS on your phone to find out where you are, even on most trails. And, but unlike the roads, the trails may not have signs. So you need to be aware of where you are and how you're going to get back. And again, nothing to be worried about, just something to think about as you're getting ready to head out. So what does this mean for you beginners? Well, it's all great news. You're in for the adventure. If you've never run a trail, you're in for an adventure. So how do you do it and have an enjoyable experience? Well, first, do a bit of research for your area. Where are the trails? What are the difficulty levels? Are there maps available? What are the local flora and fauna that you need to be aware of and perhaps prepared for? So how do you find this information? Well, more than likely, this these days you can Google it. But typically, there are local organizations that manage the trails, and you can get maps and information from them. And many of the trail systems are actually in the various electronic maps now and may even be in your favorite running app. The best way may still be to find a local trail runner. Get some old-timer like me who knows all the trails within a 50-mile radius to give you some suggestions based on your experience level and what you're looking for. And maybe even get a guided tour. Just be careful. Said trail runner guide isn't a crazy person who's going to get you in over your head. Which leads to our next point. Ease into it. Start the first couple weeks, first couple outings doing less mileage than you normally would. And go purposely slower. Run purposefully with a heightened awareness of your form. And allow your body time to adapt to the trails. Don't start with the most difficult trail. Another question you might have is, do I need any special equipment to run the trails? No, you really don't. Depending on where you live, you might need some bug spray or a good hat. And if you're going long, just like on the road, you need fluid and fuel. And sometimes that can be a little more challenging to provision on the trails. And eventually, if you decide you like trail running, you might get some trail shoes or other specific clothing and accessories like gators and water packs and water bottles, etc. But if you're just starting, you don't need any of that. Your road shoes will work just fine. In summary, trail running is simple. 
Do some research on your trails, ease into it, have fun. If you like it, take it to the next level. Sign up for a trail race. The trail racing community is a bunch of wonderful people. They're a bunch of laid-back hippie types who are a lot of fun to hang around with. I love trail running. The gnarlier, the better. I find a certain spiritual refreshment in the woods, even when it's hot and slow and buggy and I fall down. So do yourself a favor and go find a trail. And now for today's featured interview. So, Alan, why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and, uh, and why we're talking today? Well, thank you for having me, Chris. I am a certified personal trainer, certified running coach, pretty accomplished runner, athlete, kind of got there by accident, really. I was a TV investigative reporter for 18 years in Miami, St. Louis, won two Emmys in the National Press Club, caught a few guys doing bad things who went to jail. And I also have been on a mission because I watched my mom and both sisters get breast cancer and a whole lot more, found that a vegan diet was really saved my diet, uh, saved my life. I almost died of a colon blockage when I was 28. And so I am now an author of um, three cookbooks, Eat Vegan on $4 a Day, Kitchen Divided, Paleo Vegan, and in August, Vegan Fitness for Mortals. Right. So here's here's the funny story of how I found myself to this conversation. My daughter left your book someplace she does this i don't know if you have people in your life who do this they leave things that they think you should read <laughs> where you should where you'll pick them up and uh so she left uh eat vegan on four dollars a day and i started thumbing through it and i said hey this is an endurance sports person i can talk to them so i so i called you up cool well thank you and like like we were talking about before it's funny with endurance sports because it tends a lot of my friends tend to be vegans or they tend to move towards a vegan uh, diet, at least, if not the lifestyle, and not because of cruelty to animals, just because they have, when you become an endurance athlete, you you gain this awareness of your body, and that tends to lead them towards a cleaner diet. Totally. And, you know, I got into it for health reasons, and then I just kind of found, I started running and realized that, especially as I began aging that I kind of joke I win my age group because I just show up now that's not completely true but I've been amazed at how well you feel how much energy you have and the big thing for athletes is that we just don't have inflammation on a vegan diet and even you know arthritis uh, organizations doctors all say if you want to reduce the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis specifically to dump animal protein because it causes inflammation in the joints and I have really observed this as I've aged up, as we runners like to say. In my age group, the women are dropping like flies who are meat eaters. And those of us who are still around, I'm, I'm just kind of blown away by how many runners uh, I'm finding who are vegan because they have kind of discovered the best-kept secret in America is a vegan diet and a little bit uh, or a lot of aerobic activity. So that's that's really the short answer to your question. It's just um, when you understand that doctors don't get a single nutrition class in medical school, then you understand why we all have to kind of go out and be our own investigative reporters to figure out the truth about food. Yeah. And, you know, I had this experience last year. I was at a half marathon and I was talking to some people and the guy was saying, oh, I got to go in for arthroscopic surgery. My knees are bad. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm going, you need to look at your nutrition because, you know, he's a bigger guy. You know, you could tell he's got the standard American diet sort of thing, the celebratory foods. And he's running 50 half marathons in a row because he's up full on into the, you know, the endurance sports thing. But I'm looking at him going, you're coming to the wrong conclusion here. You need to look at your nutrition if you want to keep doing this. Absolutely. In fact, that is really, you kind of uh, summarized uh, the main points that I have made in my upcoming book, um, Vegan Fitness for Mortals, because I really saw this. I, you know, I just wanted to kind of scream at some of these people like, where are you going to, guys going to be at my age? You know, I want to keep doing this until I'm 100. And, you know, wonderful that you want to go run an ultra marathon and, and do all that. But at what price? At what toll is it going to take on your body? And can your body support that kind of an experience long term? And, you know, 
there's so many people. I mean, I'm not you know, discouraging or, or, you know, trying to dissuade anybody who wants to do those kinds of extreme sports or have those really lofty goals. But, you know, for me, I just placed in my 101st 5K race for my age group since 2006, just on plants. And I'll be standing there holding an age group award, wearing my vegan shirt at a race. And people are just kind of staring at my chest because that's where the words are for, for the title of Eat Vegan on $4 a Day. And they're just kind of going like, yeah, right. Or you can't run on a vegan diet. And they'll actually say those kinds of things to me. So it's it's really uh, kind of interesting. I use these opportunities to engage and ask people what they're doing. And, and I come across people who say all those kinds of things to me and much worse. I mean, people who had to stop running, they say, because of heart disease. And a lot of times runners will think they've got uh, the free pass because they are a runner so they can go eat donuts afterwards and, you know, all the garbage food. So you do have to take care of both things, uh, both the diet and, you know, just because you're a runner doesn't mean that um, you can eat meat and dairy and and not have to pay the price. You know, you asked about uh, endurance and how a vegan diet helps that earlier in the conversation. And I always uh, am amused. I've done a lot of the 5K races are longer that I've placed in have happened since 2006. But I've also done a couple of marathons and about 10 half marathons just for fun, even though I'm really much more of a sprinter. But, you know, we really, uh, a vegan diet, you're kind of carb loading all the time. And carbs are not a bad word complex carbohydrates, foods in their natural state. That's all good. Simple sugars, not so good. So, right. you know, we have become kind of carb phobic, but uh, it really, humans and, and certainly some of the best endurance runners around the planet um, are eating a diet that's 70 to 80% carbs. Yeah, and, and you're old enough to have lived through uh, several fad diet cycles like I have. Right. You know, I remember the uh, the fiber thing back in the 70s 80s and the you know and then we went into uh don't eat eggs cholesterol thing and then we went into the full-on atkins fat thing and you know anything that i heard a great quote yesterday which is that anything that has a name for a diet you probably don't want to do right right <laughs> yeah so well, it's, it's, you know i'm kind of into saying vegan diet i don't know uh, i mean it just describes what it is which for listeners who maybe are not familiar, it's nothing with the mother or a face. So no meat, no dairy, uh, no animal products whatsoever. And there are lots of reasons not to do it. Um, but, you know, it, there's so many videos out there now on YouTube. It's hard to stick your head in the sand and pretend that you don't see pictures of the male chicks that are ground up alive on their fir first day of life because they serve no purpose. So, you know, those kinds of things certainly affect, I'm finding, um, the younger generation because they're the YouTube mm. generation and they grew up on this stuff. But from a health standpoint, you know, so many people are able to reverse diabetes, reverse heart disease. Those are the two main diseases, I would say, uh, although cancer is right up there, too. We were part of the original breast cancer gene studies. And there's a whole study of uh, called epigenetics now about how genes right. are turned on and turned off. And so genes do not determine destiny. And we really are finding that uh, a vegan diet just really helps people in a lot of ways lose weight, especially I lost 25 pounds this way and have been able to keep it off. But it is a lifestyle. I mean, I think that is the thing that you, people have to find is a way of eating that they, they love. And there's so much variety on a plant-based or vegan diet. That's the other thing that keeps people kind of hanging on for a long time, not to mention how good you feel both physically, but also knowing that you're not asking somebody else to do what you don't want to do, which is to go kind of uh, kill an animal. Yeah. So, you know, you have a, a this is sort of a broad question, probably a three-week answer on this question, but you talk a lot about the relationship between food and disease in the sense that certain foods uh, either cause or, like you said, epigenetically cause a gene to turn on or off that give you that disease or cause that disease to manifest. So what did you discover in your research? Because you're a super smart person, right? You're an investigative journalist. Um, you figured this stuff out for yourself. What did you find in terms of the relationship between food and disease? Well, I don't know how super smart I am, but I do know enough just from research online and even before computers. Uh, one of the things I did as a television reporter, I always say that figuring out the truth about food became the investigative reporting job of my life just because I, I, I lost my aunt to breast 
cancer at the age of five. We used to go to hospitals as a family and kind of joke that this was the scene of our family reunion that year. So I grew up in hospitals watching up close and personal the intense pain and suffering of many of my relatives. And I just eventually came to the conclusion that so many of their diseases were totally preventable just because of all of the research that I've done. Um, my, the most popular book probably out there is The China Study, which talks about the rural areas of China. This was written by a former NIH uh, uh, scientist, researcher who kind of went rogue and uh, really disclosed his 20 years of research in China that showed in the rural areas they didn't get any diseases of affluence. He coined that phrase, T. Colin Campbell. But when they moved to the urban areas, then their disease rates became comparable to uh, Western cultures. So there's that. And then, of course, my most favorite online group is Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and I actually did media training for many of the doctors who came through there. It's a group of doctors and dietitians, concerned citizens who have long believed that traditional medicine where doctors don't get a single nutrition class is, is really causing lots of harm, contrary to what um, doctors would like to be in the profession for, not causing harm. So they started... Oh, gosh, in the 1990s, teaching people how to cook, and then they developed a whole curriculum, training teachers to do cooking classes. And I, after my media training there, I decided to become one of their cooking instructors and then taught in our local community. And that's really where I got the idea to write Eat Vegan on $4 a day because I, I felt like I'm seeing so many stories on the news that said you can't eat well on a budget, you can't work, do food stamps, eating a, a plant-based diet. And I thought, you know, I've been doing this for the better part of 35 years. As a, I left, When I left television, I became a financial consultant for Smith Barney and did that for five years. So I every recipe in Eat Vegan crunches the numbers based on ingredients you can find at Walmart. And I just wanted to use Walmart to show everybody has one in their community, so don't tell me you can't eat cheaply on a, you know, with a healthy diet. And people go, ew, are you recommending Walmart? And I'm going, ew, if you live below the poverty level of $23,000 a year, you're already shopping at Walmart. So mm. that's why I wanted to really crunch those numbers and make a point. But you know, one other thing, too, I actually, this running thing just kind of, I did it to show you can run on a vegan diet, but I, I found quite by accident that I was a much better sprinter and ended up competing in the National Senior Games a couple of years ago and placed seventh in the U.S. in the 1,500 meters, 10th uh, in the 400, and, and also a couple of years ago after the Senior Games the following year, I placed first in Florida in the 50, 100, 200, 400, 800, and 1,500 meters for my age group. So, you know, this, it sort of became a mission to get out there just to show how we all can do this. And I hated running up until, you know, I don't know, I tried to do it when I was younger and didn't do it very well and kind of gave it up. And it really wasn't until we moved to Florida about 12 years ago or so that I picked it back up again and was just blown away how you can do it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how you can come to that sort of later in life, right, and, and be very successful. It's very eye-opening. And, and the whole idea really is to finish without injury. A lot of the vegan activists I run into or run up against are very shrill in their messaging. And I'm not sure that does them any good because they're preaching to the choir as opposed to the people who need the message. Part of it is what happens when you see enough of these videos, you become first, I think, incredibly sad. It's sort of like the stages of grieving and then angry. And maybe we never get to the point of acceptance if you're really following the stages of, of grieving because so much of it goes on. I mean, it's, it's massive um, abuse on uh, just a, an, an hourly schedule and and many people can it's it's just hard i think at least for the activist friends i know who are the most passionate about it but you're right you do have to if you're trying to preach to the people who need it the most then you have to do it in a way that is palatable and approachable and really what i see um i am a frequent speaker at vegfest all over this country and they are exploding in interest and the way it works yeah. is that for example i got asked to speak at the cleveland the new york city and uh, new orleans vegfest they were all the same weekend and i've spoken at all of those events multiple times in previous years so that's what's happening now is that we are getting these veg fests um, blowing up 
everywhere. And so the vegan food manufacturers, and those are also exploding like crazy because there is such a demand for it now, they will underwrite or sponsor these VegFests. My publisher will sponsor the VegFest with the condition that his top authors get to speak. So that's kind of that's another way that I've gotten out on the lecture circuit. But they give away free food at these events. They have just you know lots of different talks. And, and the speakers are not the kind that you are, at least for the most part, that, that are angry, militant, people that would offend listeners for the first time. And we all find our ways of getting in. Like Dr. Michael Greger is a fabulous um, speaker. He, yeah, he's good. Yeah, I mean, people like that are just, and there are plenty of them. And they are great vegan doctors and dietitians out there. We're all kind of, we see each other on the lecture circuit all the time. So another thing that happens is they realize, too, that, their doctors don't know diddly about diddly as far as, you know, because they didn't get a nutrition class in medical school. And when they find out that they can reverse their heart disease and lose all this weight by reading a book, it makes them very angry from the health standpoint. It's like, well, why didn't I yeah. know this? So, you know, you have those right. issues as well. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, looking at it from my experience, it's generational and it's absolutely cultural. And the culture is turning a little bit. We'll see if we get to that tipping point in the next decade or so, um, but it does seem to be turning in that direction, right? But it's definitely cultural. Yeah, and I think from the, the research I've done, uh, to your point about what I've looked at, from an environmental standpoint, the United Nations has said that giving up eating animals will do more to reduce your carbon footprint than giving up transportation of any form. And that's a really powerful statement. And where we're going from climate change with animal agriculture being one of the largest, if not the largest, depending what statistics you look at, contributor to global warming, I think we're going to be forced, as I, I jokingly say in my cooking classes, I hope you love the recipes because we're all going to be eating this way in uh, 20 or 30 years <laughs> anyway. You know, the water resources, the land <clears throat> resources, especially to keep up with now the demand in China, it's just, it can't can't keep up. The, the, the world can't support diet based around meat and dairy. And what I just said came out of National Geographic talking about it. Had, they had a cover story about a year ago called The Real Paleo Diet, and they pretty much quoted out of my book, Paleo Vegan, saying just what I did. And basically, they said that the meat-based paleo books are, quote, their words, a stew of misconceptions. Yeah, I mean, that whole uh, paleo thing is a historical imaginary is what the technical term is for it. So whenever we look back at some better time and then try to overlay our own uh, mores on top of that exactly. or habits on top exactly. of that. So that's that's a fallacy right out of the right. gate. But people want simple solutions. Right. And you've got the you know, you've got the U.S. government and a bunch of industry folks against you. Uh, one of your chapter headings is where are the broccoli ads? Right. Right. So, you know, how is the government complicit in the funding of all this? Well, we could do a whole hour on that, but uh, two yeah. main areas I see, and that is the subsidization of the meat and dairy industry. If they weren't subsidized, we would probably be paying anywhere from three to nine times more than what we do at the grocery store for meat and dairy. But that is all about politics and lobbyists, and it's one of the reasons a number of us have been trying to get a vegan cooking show on mainstream television. Like, And I've had people interested because, you know, two Emmys and the National Press Club, you think I would be pretty qualified to do a cooking show, especially with all my experience doing cooking classes. And yet, every time I've gotten close, it's a pushback by, oh, our angels don't like the idea, you know, translation, meat and dairy advertisers. So I get it, and we run up against that all the time. But, you know, so beyond the subsidizing that happens um, also would be the advertising dollars. And I talk about this in the book, and there's a program, it's part of the a farm bill called the USDA's checkoff program, and if you buy a watermelon, for example, three pennies on the dollar might go to this checkoff program to promote the, the product, the industry. And as I break down the list, when you look at the top of the list, the folks who get the most amount of money through the checkoff program would be the meat and dairy industry. And there's actually two categories, one for dairy and a separate one for fluid milk. And the Dairy Council, they have a well-publicized program, maybe you've run into it, called Marketing Chocolate Milk as the Ideal Recovery oh, Drink. Yeah. And oh, yeah. The, nothing, nothing, nothing makes me mad at all when they cross the finish line and see them handing out chocolate milk. Bingo. 
and and everybody's smiling about it. Like you're you're killing yourself. It's sugar and and chemicals. Yeah, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. So and and uh, I've just been on a tear to try and publicize that. Although you can go on the Dairy Council site and they make no secrets about it. And there's even I was uh, I'm a certified running coach and there was a workshop that was on the agenda of a continuing education session in Orlando that said marketing chocolate milk is the perfect recovery drink for children. And that one really made my head explode. Because, you know, the kids, there's something in milk called casomorphin, as in morphine, and it makes baby cows keep coming back for more because nature wanted to make sure mammalian milk, which is very species specific, is appealing to the younger guys. So they will continue to grow and develop. So humans get addicted to this enzyme as well. And that's why I just hear it like on almost an hourly basis. Oh, I would go vegan, but I can't give up my cheese. Well, that's why the casomorphin is very concentrated in cheese. Yeah, and or the other thing that you get is the um, the uh, the the meat athlete uh, singlets they give away for free at some of these races I've been at. Yeah. So that's your your tax dollars at work. Right, and you know this whole USDA checkoff program. It's the reason that when you walk into your kids' or grandkids' cafeterias, you don't see big posters that say "Got watermelon" or. Uh, spinach, it's what's for dinner. The whole got milk campaigns and, and all of the celebrities who have been recruited, you know, they, they get endorsements from people like that, compliments of our tax dollars. And, uh, I just think it's, it's so unconscionable, all of that. No, I found it really easy to give up dairy. You know, and like you said, if you are training, if you're actively training or competing, you will feel the difference in the soreness and your ability to recover. If you eat cleaner, meaning, you know, more uh, leafy green stuff versus uh, meat-based products or dairy-based products, you'll definitely feel it. I know that's that, that to be true. You talked about your cooking show. You know, is that something generational as well? Have people lost the ability to cook? You know, I think there is some of that, especially, you know, I have three daughters and they're all employed and they're all really busy. And I think it's just very easy for them to grab it grab dinner on their way home at night and, um, you know, not have to cook. And people do say to me, well, like, I don't have time to cook. And my answer to that is just simply, you don't have time for diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Those are real time wasters. Uh, I have grown up with that in my family, and I've seen how much time is devoted to managing those diseases once they are diagnosed. And it's not pretty. It's mm -hmm. not fun at all. You've done a great job with this uh, this vegan on four dollars a day, right? You made it really simple for people. Here's some simple things, and only that, but some different things, right? So it's a bit of an adventure in that if you go this route, you're going to be eating things you never ate before, and it's going to be a real sort of uh, adventure for you taste wise as well, right? Oh yeah, I think I mean I'm pretty biased, but I think the food is really delicious, and you know in terms of time, gosh, you know if you cook up beans a couple times a week in a slow cooker or pressure cooker, and it really speeds up the time, you know you're good as far as your source of protein. I mean, there's protein in dark uh, in, in all vegetables. There's even a, a gram of protein in a banana. So you know I always ask people, do you know anybody who's been diagnosed with a protein deficiency? And once in a blue moon, in an audience of two or three hundred, somebody will t timidly raise their hand, and you know I always want to ask the details like really was it a protein deficiency but point being then I ask how many of you know somebody who's been diagnosed with diabetes cancer or uh, heart disease and everybody raises their hands and I go that's where we should be focusing our worries and our, we should be stressing out about that not whether we get enough protein because most people get plenty of protein and too much protein really we don't get enough fiber that's another thing we can worry about um, on the standard American diet you're lucky to get 20 grams of protein a day if you eat a, a well-balanced plant-based diet you get 40 to 60 a day and never have issues uh, like I did with um, with uh, the colon blockage, and you know this this plays out in so many ways. I mean, the, the colon blockage is only the beginning, the tip of the iceberg for what most people have, usually like heart disease, uh, and and eventually maybe um, colon cancer if you don't get um, the toxins flushed from your body, which is what a high fiber diet will do. Yeah, and it's 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 not a non-recoverable thing. You could be doing it the wrong way all your life and you'll get immediate gains um, if you can make a transition or a partial transition later in life and it becomes more important later in life because that's when these 
types of diseases manifest. Absolutely. So is it all or nothing? Well, in terms of the symptoms, I will tell you, you know, there have been times where, like, I'll go to a restaurant and even though I'm pretty clear about wanting or defining what a vegan diet is when I'm ordering, I can tell if, like, the bread had dairy in it or, you know, something was amiss. I mean, I will feel it in my joints and just, like, fluid retention in my body and as a result you know I unless I'm in a big city where I know it's a a vegan restaurant I do like cooking at home because I can be in control Mm -hmm. and especially before and after a race and you know I've had I I did the Sarasota half marathon this past year with some friends who came down and ran it with me from Cleveland and you know we were just a little bit sore the next day but not all that much you know and um, my meat-eating friends are hobbling around like they've got like a, a ruler up their back or something (laughs) <laughs> and you know that's that's the real difference when you you, you talk about the lack of inflammation uh, a vegan diet is very anti-inflammatory alkaline diet and there's just so many benefits to eating that way as an athlete you know you do find people in the mainstream checking it out when i competed at the national yep. senior games uh, a couple of years ago there was a woman sitting in the dorm where the the cafeteria was and she sees my eat vegan on four dollars a day shirt and she goes she kind of yells to me across the tables are you vegan i go yeah she said sit down it turns out she had when it was in her late 70s was running a uh, sub seven mile and just quite amazing in her athletic accomplishments and uh, and invited me back to a room where she had a lot of raw vegan stuff and dehydrated crackers, that kind of thing. And, you know, so the more you start looking at this, you'll find people who she gave me the cover story for Masters Running and she's on the cover and she's sort of sheepish about it. And I read the article and there wasn't a diddly word mentioned about and nobody asked her what she ate. It was just all about her running accomplishments. And I thought, wow, what a loss, mm. you know? Yeah. So just to boil it down for your average midpacker, what we're talking about here is, you know, inflammation's a, a general word. What we're talking about is that Achilles tendonitis you have, that sore knee you have, that plantar fasciitis you have could be diet-based. And if not 100%, it's absolutely influenced by this. So if you've been struggling with these sort of debilitating chronic inflammation-based diseases, this is an avenue you can try. Absolutely. And even if, I mean... You know, if you are running on concrete for a marathon several times a year and you end up with one of those conditions you talked about, at least if it may be caused by running on uh, hundreds of miles on concrete, which concrete's pretty much a, a fairly recent invention over the last 100 or 200 years. So, and that was a message of the senior games is get off the hard surfaces and turn your garments onto kilometers and go run on a baseball field to just get off the track for training. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But, you know, there's only so much a vegan diet can do, I guess is what I'm saying. However, you're right that um, recovery from those issues can be a lot faster and a lot easier if you don't have more enemies behind you lined up to take you down. So a vegan diet can can do quite a bit, although I jokingly say it can't cure flat feet. Still working on that one. Right. Yeah. It may make you uh, faster because you will have less inflammation, but we're not sure. So the uh, let's move towards the exit here. Let's Let's come up with a simple challenge. What's one thing that somebody can try or test to move in the right direction? Well, people often ask me, how do you eat on $4 a day? And the five-second television answer is eat beans, grains, greens, buy in bulk, shop the perimeter of the store. So um, using beans as your main source of protein, if you have more of an issue with beans, you can morph to nuts and seeds. But uh, just feel confident that you're not going to die or probably won't ever get diagnosed with a protein deficiency. So I like quinoa. That's my favorite grain. I do lots of whole grains. Um, I like millet, brown rice, and then um, just try and eat two big salads a day, the kinds that, you know, is the size that you would serve in a serving bowl, salad bowl. That's what I try and eat and have some good dressings. So you'll eat those greens and I have a whole chapter in Eat Vegan on just salad dressings because I felt it was that important to, for people to find a dressing they like so they will eat those greens. Yep, absolutely. I'm with you on that because the salad dressing, the commercial salad dressing can spoil all the uh, the goodness of that big salad. You got it. Yep, because they're all sugar and, and crap. 
Yeah, I know. I'm with you on that. That's uh, that's my strategy as well. Or the uh, I have a uh, a bowl of chickpeas soaking on the counter at home right now, awesome. and use the uh, the rice cooker yeah. for beans and chickpeas and rice, and just make it in bulk ahead of time. Because the real challenge is that convenience, right? Exactly. We're not. Everybody wants to be healthy, so the conflict is convenience versus long term health. Because you're saying today I can save 20 minutes. But what's that going to do to you in 20 years? Exactly. And it's the same with money, too. It's not only uh, how much money you can save at the store by eating beans and grains, but it's how much money you save by avoiding doctors and diseases. And I often joke that uh, we ought to think about a restaurant hamburger not being $5, but by uh, dollar cost averaging over the course of your lifetime, how many hamburgers you eat based on the million-dollar bypass surgery, which is what it costs my ex-husband, uh, when he underwent his bypass surgery uh, following his heart attack from not eating a vegan diet, um, that's more like a $5,000 burger at that restaurant. So we all end up paying for this, and it's not sustainable. We cannot continue to support million-dollar visits to to the hospital for conditions that can be prevented. One way or the other, our hand is going to be forced on, on this cultural artifact. Exactly. Yep, great. So uh, you've probably heard this 100 100- times before but I that's all great food for thought I'll let you get back to your <laughs> let's go back to your day job okay and we'll uh, we'll chat in the future at some place thank you very much I really appreciate your thoughts on this. thank you so much Chris for having me on it's been a pleasure all right sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know other people's narratives are you listening? I was out running with my buddy Ryan last weekend, and we were bitching about our wives and how immune to simple logic they were sometimes. And I'm sure this is a beloved pastime of men and husbands since the first cells discovered cytokinesis. The question at hand is why two people who know each other so well and have so much shared history can look at an identical set of data and come up with wildly different reactions, i.e., why do we disagree so much on so many simple things? Well, this is the core of how in any relationship there can be strife, different opinions, different conclusions, and different levels of emotion associated with the same set of information. You're seeing two different things because you're filtering it through two different lenses. And I proposed that it is because neither party can hear the narrative of the other. Neither party is really listening to the narrative of the other, and both parties are projecting their own narrative onto the other. In this sense, you never listen is a true statement. You are listening to the words, but you're running them through your narrative, and that leads you to a different place. They are listening to the same words, and running them through their own narrative, and arriving at a wholly opposite place. For example, (laughs) your spouse might wander by and say, the paint on the neighbor's house is looking a bit dull. Now your narrative machine will kick into action, and maybe you think, yeah, you know, I never liked them, lazy bastards, we should move. Whereas every husband knows the intended narrative probably was, you should get off your lazy ass and paint the house. We don't know what story is going on in someone else's head, which is why those of us who have been in relationships for a long time learn to read the signs and ask the clarifying questions. Do you want me to do something? Am I missing something? Are you asking me something and looking for an answer? Which ironically is our internal narrative of... I have to hunt around to figure out what they're being obtuse about this time so I don't get blamed for failing to take a hint and not doing something I didn't know I was supposed to do. (laughs) And we laugh about it. We laugh about our relationships with our wives and our kids and our family because they're so close to us. But this understanding of other people's narratives is meaningful and useful in all the relationships you have. And I heard a story recently. I can't vouch for it. I can't say it's a, a apocryphal or not, but it was about Isabella Rossellini, the actress and Lancome model, 
And the story goes that she was in Russia working on a movie when her boyfriend, David Lynch, called late one night to break off their relationship. And she was upset and she really needed to talk to someone. So she called her ex-husband, Martin Scorsese. And Marty said, I knew it. I've known for four months. And Isabella said, but how could you have known? And Scorsese said, I saw him kiss you on the lips on the red carpet at Cannes. Up until that point, there were no public displays of affection. So Marty continued, a man who does that has something to hide. Whereas Isabella had interpreted the same kiss as a deepening of their relationship, a commitment to a new level of trust and intimacy. And she was surprised by Lynch's call to break it off. The interpretation of events depends on our inner narrative. We interpret those events through the lens of our narrative. What can we do besides, you know, sleep on the couch? Well, first, I would propose what we probably can't do. And what we can't do is change the other person. We can't change their narrative. We can't enforce or export our narrative onto theirs. That's just not going to happen. We can start with the realization that other people have their own narratives and we have our own narratives, we can realize that sometimes they're wildly different. We can understand that when it comes to dealing with others, it's not about us and our inner dialogue. They can't hear that, and we can't hear theirs. So any conclusions we come to based on our rendition of reality is ours alone and may or may not have any bearing on the other's rendition of reality if that makes sense. That's a key element of awareness. That's a great starting point, if you can just understand that. And next, once we realize we don't know what their narrative is, it behooves us to try to understand it as best we can by asking questions. What are you thinking? What are you, are you worried about something? What do you think I'm saying? Try to clarify. And we can also qualify our own statements to make our own narrative more easily understood. Look, here is what my honest objective is. <laughs> By being clear, this is what I would like. And many times we don't do this. And the reasons we're obtuse in our communication is that A, we think the other person is on the same pathway as we are. Or B, we don't want to hurt their feelings or be assumptive. So we don't give them all the information. And I'm no expert, but avoiding honest communication seems to just delay the result and magnify it when it does come. One thing you can do is take the conversation up a level to the meta-purpose, if there even is a purpose. Find that shared purpose at a higher level, and then you can start back down a shared path. You can find points of commonality at a different level in your narratives, in your mutual narratives, and you can use these points of commonality to create a shared narrative going forward. But not like a lawyer arguing a case. That's not the logic I'm talking about. You can't say, we both agree that health is important, right? Great, then you should lose some weight. <laughs> that's not using common points to find a common path. That's using common points to enforce your own path. A more useful way of doing it would be to understand how the commonalities can be used to forge a joint path forward into the future. You agree that health is important, right? Great. How do you think we should manifest that health in our lives, in our family, in our relationship. What would you like to prioritize? One thing that leaders can do, which maybe breaks the rules a little bit, is to lead with their narrative, to create a compelling vision of the future state that creates a clearing. A compelling public narrative can have the impact of pulling those people you are in relationships with forward into its energy. Your narrative as a leader creates a safe place for people to follow. You can do that. You can lead with a clear, compelling narrative or vision of the future. And you can have that narrative and it will pull others to you. And finally, I would stress that we are all in control of our own narrative past, present, and future. And this is a great responsibility because this story, our story, will be told with or without our guidance and intervention. You control that inner narrative. 
If it is taking you to a place you don't want to go, then you need to have the self-awareness to look hard at why you are telling the stories that you are. I'm not a psychologist or a family counselor of any type. My life and my relationships are as messy as anyone else's. We're humans. It's messy being a human. It's messy business. But I think the world would be a kinder place if we all stopped a few short breaths to understand the narrative of those we know and love. It is our responsibility to listen for the inner narrative that drives those close to us. It is our responsibility to understand how the stories we tell impact the world around us. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, it's time to put down that fistful of raw kale and get on with your lives. You have grazed your way through to the end of episode 4-344 of the Run Run Live podcast. Next week, I have a cool interview with a guy who hit the slot machines for a couple million bucks. It then ruined his life, but then he became an ultra runner, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Remember, folks, the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. We do this by offering a membership option where members get access to exclusive members-only audio. So I do special stuff for you. And for the cost of a 5 eighths ounce bottle of the original Blue Waltz perfume on Half.com, you can be a member of the Run Run Live support crew. And I'm currently working on an additional podcast feed so you can subscribe to the members podcast feed and the members audio will be downloaded to your listening device with no extra effort like magic because that's what my existing members asked me to do. And I'm also going to go back through and curate, recurate maybe, some of the uh, 300 plus interviews I've done that I particularly liked for my members. Links are in the show notes and at ronronlib.com. So I finished the stint wearing the heart monitor from my doctor, and I ended up running out of electrodes. I mean, if you're working out every day and it's summertime, you take a lot of showers, and that chews up a lot of electrodes if, if you do replace them every time. I'm going to see those doctors or nurses or whoever in August, but I don't think they saw anything. I think it was just the heat and the jet lag and just getting old. And I also think the few rounds I went with pneumonia in May and then the antibiotics that nuked my biome, I think that all knocked me down a couple pegs. Not much I can do about that. Just put the head down and muddle through. One of my mantras is to wake up every day and do the best I can with what I have. Or as General Schwarzkopf said, you fight with the army you have. I do have a new project that I'm working on. And part of this project is to put it out there, share it broadly, and ask for feedback. I'm writing a new book specifically. I think I will write about how to create a powerful personal narrative to drive your life. And I believe this ability to create a powerful narrative has enabled me to be successful, but more importantly, to be at peace with myself and my choices. I would like to share this key ability with the world. I know there's millions of people like me or in a place where they don't know what to do next or don't have a purpose or a reason in life and they're struggling somehow. And by walking them through the process of documenting their past narrative, identifying the negative narratives in their life and rewriting and internalizing a powerful positive self-narrative, I think I can change lives. And the difference this time or differences you know, from my other books is that I'm going to do it in a self-help-styled book with simple exercises and such to specifically walk you through the process. And it'll be designed to be saleable. It'll be designed to support speaking engagements around those themes. And it will be designed with publishers and publicists and media, you know, as the target audience in mind. And there you go. It's out there. No turning back. So if you want to help me, I'd love to get feedback as I create this project and its content. And if any of you have ideas or people I should talk to, feel free. I've always been a go-it-alone, do-it-myself guy, but this time I'm aiming to break that 
bad habit and learn something new. Because at the end of the day, if you're not scaring yourself, you're not growing. So keep growing with me, and I'll be out there seeing you grow as well. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. I'll just sit here and wait for you to stop ringing, Mr. Phone. Because I've got nothing better to do. Nothing else to do tonight. Thank you very much. Go ahead. Ring away. Not a problem. I'm not on a schedule. Not a problem. Waka, waka, waka.